Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. Peter was in the midst of preaching a fiery sermon when we closed our last lesson. I love that kind of preaching and have no use for the milquetoast, wishy-washy motivational talks that are so popular today. Such spineless messages are detrimental to the true gospel and to the souls of men, women, teens, and children. It almost feels like the days of spirit-filled, on-fire preaching is over because a large portion of the pulpit ministry across the nation is pathetically anemic or outright dead. Nonetheless, the Lord has a holy remnant. He still has faithful servants that preach the truth under the anointing of the Spirit out of love for God and for the people. Though their numbers have dramatically fallen, they aren't extinct as the hordes of hell wish that they were. Peter's soul-stirring sermon was the love of God revealed. He was preaching to a hard audience of proud religious people that were blind to their spiritual bankruptcy. A lukewarm and sipid message would never break through the hardness of their hearts, and they won't break through the hard hearts of people in our day either. But a sermon set on fire from heaven did, and still can. All the motivational drivel that comes out of the American pulpits will never produce a life-shaking conviction that brings people to heartfelt repentance where their lives are revolutionized by the Holy Spirit. As we continue examining Peter's sermon, we will see what an anointed sermon looks like and how it affects both the stiff-necked and tender-hearted. Peter began his message by making sure to give all the credit for the lame man's healing to Jesus. He was determined to not rob God of the glory that was due to him. He then established the continuity between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, with Jesus, whom the Lord glorified. The apostle then exposed the wickedness of Israel, her religious leaders, and the people by boldly declaring, You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. Peter's sermon was blazing hot. Yet it was filled with the love of God, because love warns, and those preachers that don't warn the people don't love them. They only love themselves and their position. Peter's sermon was filled with passion, because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he loved the people and was preaching to them what they truly needed to hear. This is the kind of preaching the Spirit anoints, and this is the kind of man the Spirit works through. The sermon continues with one more bold denunciation of the people and then God's response to the evil they perpetrated by proclaiming in verse 15, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By declaring that Jesus was the author of life, Peter was revealing the Savior's divinity. The Jews knew the creation story from Genesis, where the Lord fashioned Adam from the dust of the earth and breathed in him the breath of life. I would venture to say that Jesus revealed many truths about his divinity after his resurrection, which is when the disciples would have finally been able to receive such truths. Prior to Christ's resurrection, the disciples would have had a hard time grasping the full meaning of his divinity, though Jesus said much about it in veiled ways that must have been confusing to them. Now Peter was boldly announcing to the crowd Christ's divinity and exposed the wickedness of the people by proving that they had killed God incarnate, their promised Messiah. There couldn't have been a more despicable crime mankind could have committed than to kill the very one who gave them life. Even now, 
With all the knowledge we have about Jesus through the precious gift of his written word, we still can't comprehend how utterly evil was the act of murdering the author of life. Peter also presents in a simple way the Trinity by stating that God raised him from the dead. We see here just the Father and Son. The equality between them is seen in that Jesus is spoken of as the author of life, who is the creator, that is distinct from the Father, who is also the creator. In spite of the fact that Israel had murdered their Messiah, the Father raised his physical body to life. What these wicked men intended for evil and their own selfish gain, the Lord turned for their good, if they would only repent of their sin and surrender to their promised Messiah. We see in all this that Peter was preaching on the crucified and resurrected Savior. He was crucified as their atoning sacrifice so they could be forgiven, and was raised to life so they could be born again to a new life in Christ who is the author of life. Then Peter declared, we are witnesses of this, and the we in this setting is Peter and John. Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1 that every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This was the common thought of the day. Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 16, when he was teaching about how to properly administer church discipline by stating, But if you will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This principle comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Even at the sham trial of Jesus, they strove to bring charges against him by using two or three witnesses to accuse him of religious or civil crimes. But the witnesses couldn't agree, so their prosecution broke down. The need of witnesses was also part of legal transactions, such as we find in the story of Ruth. We are told in Ruth chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilon, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife. The response to Boaz is seen in verse 11. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. There are many examples I could give about the importance the Jews put upon faithful witnesses to establish any matter, whether legal or civil. Peter was using this principle to help support his bold assertions about who Jesus is and expose the guilt the Jews incurred by murdering the Savior. In verse 16, Peter clearly laid out what happened. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. The man was healed by Jesus, but in response to the faith of Peter and John. This is astounding. The God who needs no one to be who he is and to accomplish what he wants responds to those who have faith in him. The Lord isn't obligated to heal because people have faith in him. He heals because that's in keeping with his nature as revealed through Scripture. The word teaches that by his wounds we are healed. So the Savior made a way through the atonement to give healing to those who believe. Those stripes on the Savior's back covers everything people need to receive divine healing. This includes our physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, and relational needs. The Lord isn't just the Savior of our soul, but of the whole person. We often think too small about the healing power of God, 
and as a result, we can miss out on what the Lord wants to do for us. We see in the case of the former lame beggar that he was completely healed, which tells us that his body was healed, along with his mind, which allowed him to immediately jump and walk. In this verse, Peter is once again giving the glory to God for the miracle by taking none of it for himself. This is an important part of being used by God to see the miraculous happen through us. Then in verse 17, Peter continued to prepare the way for the people to repent by saying, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. Peter isn't trying to soften the conviction that had come upon the people over learning of their guilt in murdering Messiah, but in striving to bring hope to an otherwise hopeless situation. If all they could see was their guilt before God without getting a glimpse of His mercy that He was offering them, then they could give over to despair and hopelessness. Because mercy was going to be offered to them doesn't in the least diminish their guilt before God. It should actually increase their understanding of it, since He's willing to pardon them for their crimes if they will repent. It's true that they acted in ignorance, but it doesn't alleviate their culpability in the crimes they committed. Though they may not have realized that they had their Messiah murdered by the Romans, they knew they were sentencing to a horrible death a fellow Jew who was innocent of any crime. With all the people Jesus healed, they knew he had done Israel much good in relieving the suffering of many people. Peter went on to say in verse 18, But this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. God's foreknowledge doesn't mean he forced the people to murder Jesus for that would mean they were only obeying God's will and weren't guilty of any crime. The Lord knows how people work better than people understand themselves. He's able to work in the lives of people while never violating their free will, and in this way the Lord accomplishes His will. He knew the Jews in Jesus' day would be in bondage to dead religion, and this would cause their leaders to be jealous of their Messiah and seek to have Him murdered. The Lord used people according to their nature and didn't force them to be other than what they were of their own making. To use the view of predestination where the free will of people are violated makes mankind mere puppets and then turns God into the one who makes people to sin. The implications here are terrible and creates a God that's cruel and unjust by damning people to hell for doing what they were created to do. All that Peter is saying in verse 18 is that through the foreknowledge of God, which is a fact because he is omnipresent, omniscient, and timeless, he had his prophets proclaim what would happen to Messiah. There's more mystery here than many want to admit. We just don't know how God does what he does. There'd be a lot more unity in the church at large if we understood this simple truth and embraced our finiteness and God's infiniteness. In verses 19 and 20, Peter brings his sermon to a climax. He proclaimed, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. One important point that we learned from these verses is that people weren't saved because they were Jewish, by birth or conversion. Many people believe that they are right with God or are going to heaven because they are reared in a particular denomination or was baptized as a baby or an adult. Rituals never brought salvation to people, and they never will. The majority of the Jews that were listening to Peter preach in the temple courts were devout and probably strove to live the demands of the Mosaic law to the best of their understanding. Yet we see Peter commanding them to repent because they were sinners that needed to have their sins wiped out. 
Instead of wiped out, the King James reads blotted out, and both translations are accurate according to the Greek. The expression to blot out sins is taken from the practice of creditors who completely remove the record of the debt when the debt is paid in full. The idea of our sins being blotted out is a total removal of our sins through forgiveness and a pardon. Our guilt is atoned for through the blood of Christ. The expression to blot out sins refers to the practice of how writing tablets were covered with wax, and when a debt was paid, the wax was smoothed over, making it appear as if the debt never occurred. This expresses the idea of our receiving a divine pardon for our sins, where the records of our crimes against heaven are destroyed, and this makes it as if we had never sinned. There are many verses that speak about his blotting out, and some of those instances are scary because he's speaking against wicked men and nations. The positive dimension of the idea of blotting out is wonderful, and it relates to our salvation where our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. To those who endure to the end, Jesus declared in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, He who overcomes will be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name of the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Notice that the key to not having our name blotted out of the book of life is to overcome to the very end. There is a condition. When people do this, the Lord promised that their names will never be blotted out of the book of life throughout eternity. Psalms 51 is King David's public confession of the sins he committed of adultery and murder and the repentance that followed. In the opening verse, he pleads, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. The king knew the Mosaic law didn't have an offering that could atone for the willful sins he committed of adultery and murder. So he did the only thing left for him, which was to plead with God for mercy. David deserved the justice of divine wrath for the evil he perpetrated. And as the king of Israel, the knowledge of his sin would spread throughout the nation and even into pagan lands. Yet his cry for mercy was what he needed, for the Lord responds to such heartfelt repentance as David demonstrated. What was the act of mercy David was pleading with the Lord to show him? That the Lord would blot out his transgressions. He wanted the Lord to totally cleanse him of those damning sins so that he could once again enjoy God's favor. The serious nature of sin is further seen in the ninth verse where David cried out, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my inequities. The language here is kingly and very interesting. When a person fell into the king's disfavor, he would turn his face away from the man, who would then be removed from his presence. Depending on what offense the man committed, the turning away of the king's face could even produce his execution. The Lord had turned his face away from David, which means that he had fallen out of divine favor. David isn't directly asking to be restored to God's favor so that he could once again be allowed to enter into the presence of the Lord. Instead, he's asking the Lord to turn his face away from the king's sin. If the Lord turned his face away from David's sin, then the Lord would let his face shine upon the king once again. All the people Peter was preaching to knew the meaning behind his words. They understood in part what it means to live in God's favor and to incur his disfavor. Peter had clearly exposed the people's sins, which proved that they were out of favor with God, in spite of the fact that they were religiously devout. The only way people who are out of God's favor can obtain divine favor is through heartfelt repentance, and this is what Peter is commanding the people to do. Repentance is only half of the equation. The other half is to turn to the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
Turning to God always includes turning from a life of sin and rebellion. There's no way people can practice sin and remain in divine favor at the same time. When people legitimately repent of their sin, they will simultaneously turn away from sin while turning towards God. The promise that Peter presents is when people repent and turn to God, he will respond in three ways. First, he will forgive their sin and blot out their memory forever. Second, due to the forgiveness that comes through repentance, the Lord will refresh their soul with newness of life. And third, the Lord responds to our repentance by turning away from our sin and then turning His smiling face upon us, and this is done through Jesus, our Savior, Redeemer, and Lord. This is the greatest privilege given to mankind. The church would come alive if she really understood the import of this truth and put it into practice. Peter went on to say in verse 21, He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. Peter is reiterating Christ's teaching about his second coming. Prior to our Lord's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, Peter and the disciples wouldn't have been able to understand what Peter was preaching in this verse. The first thing we see is a veiled statement about Christ's ascension by stating he is now in heaven. The idea that he must remain in heaven isn't that he doesn't have the right or power to do otherwise, because he does, for he's almighty God. This merely informs us that according to the infinite wisdom of God, this is the best way to accomplish His will that will do the greatest good for the largest number of people. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. His coming to the disciples was both a promise of His second coming, but also of sending the Holy Spirit to live within them. At the right time, He will return, first to rapture His bride, the true church, and then at His second coming. Until that time, He comes to us through the Holy Spirit. Everything we know about the Father and Son, we know through the Holy Spirit. Everything that's done to us, for us, and through us is done through the Holy Spirit. The restoring of all things is restoring mankind and creation to His original intent. Sin has been a spiritual plague that has permeated all of creation, even to the Father's stars, and the contamination of death that our rebellion caused is one primary reason why we are told that God will create a new heaven and new earth. The old will be destroyed by fire and cease to be. This will fully cleanse everything of the vile contamination of sin and evil. When the Lord makes a new heaven and new earth, they will be righteous, pure, and holy, without any part being defiled by sin and evil. All of this, which includes His second coming and creating a new heaven and new earth, was promised long ago through the prophets. The Lord told us what would come, and these promises are absolutes. The Lord Himself made those promises, and He is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, in whom there is no lie or changeableness. Peter presents the people with an example of an ancient promise in verses 22 and 23. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among the people. Peter was speaking through the power of the Holy Spirit and was wise to bring out an ancient promise, especially one given through Moses, for it gives proof of who Jesus is according to the Mosaic law. He was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15, 18, and 19. And this prophecy would hold great clout with the devout Jews that were listening to Peter. The apostle wanted them to understand that Messiah had come, and his name is Jesus. 
He is infinitely more than a prophet who is calling people to repentance and the transformation of their life. Moses was the great lawgiver who received the law from the Lord and then communicated it to the people. Jesus, being a prophet like Moses in the sense of being a legislator or lawgiver, was giving Israel a new law that superseded the old one. As the Jews strove to obey the letter of the Mosaic law, a greater than Moses had revealed himself, who was now giving them a better covenant. They should now wholeheartedly obey Jesus above the teaching of the law. Another dimension of this is that the law was given to Moses through face-to-face communion he had with God. This privilege was beyond anything that had been seen before. Jesus went infinitely beyond this with his relationship with the Father. Since there is only one God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, they have perfect, unbroken fellowship within the Godhead. Paul wonderfully presents this thought in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1-6. through six. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest, whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what should be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house, if we hold to our courage and the hope of which we boast. The excellency and superiority of Jesus and the gospel is infinitely above that of Moses and the law. The crowd that was listening to Peter preach in the temple needed to learn that to follow Jesus, they weren't forsaking the law of Moses, but coming into the ultimate reason why the law was given, which is to see Jesus. The serious nature of this is seen in the prophetic command, you must listen to everything he tells you, Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. The he mentioned in verse 22 is about the prophet that is like Moses, which is Jesus the Messiah. The command is that they must listen to him or be cut off from the people, which is to be cut out of salvation. Implied in this verse is the fact that people can have the choice to forsake Christ and forfeit their salvation. For this to happen, they must first be in God's salvation before they can get out of it. This reveals the simple truth that the only ones who will make heaven their home are those who are faithful to Jesus to the very end. Starting outright isn't enough. We must also finish well if we want to inherit eternal life. Peter went on to state in verse 24, Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. The phrase, all the prophets, is a generalization in that there were many prophets that foretold the first and second coming of Messiah. Even as Peter said in the prior verses, Moses proclaimed the coming of Messiah, but he certainly wasn't the first. In the gap between Moses and Samuel, we don't find any prophecies about the Christ. Samuel became the first in a long line of prophets who proclaimed various aspects of Messiah, but not all of the prophets were used by God to testify about Messiah. Peter is declaring that the prophets had all agreed in foretelling the days of Messiah with one truth building upon another. Those who prophesied about him foretold very distinct aspects of Messiah, all of which were fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Since there's so much testimony from the prophets about Messiah, and given that Jesus had fulfilled them all, 
the people should listen to the voice of their own prophets and own Jesus as the promised Messiah. Peter went on to declare in verse 25, And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring, all peoples on the earth will be blessed. Peter gives a unique application to the predictions of the prophets and why the people should put their faith in Messiah Jesus. Since the Jews that were listening to Peter were descendants of the prophets in that they were actually descendants of the patriarchs, they should all believe in the scriptures that clearly reveal the Messiah. The idea of there being heirs of the prophets could also refer to those who were disciples of the Mosaic law and the rabbis that taught on the law. As heirs of Abraham, they were the ones who were to initially inherit the promises, which would eventually be given to the Gentiles as well. The Jews were the immediate recipients of the prophets and covenants given by the Lord, and they should have been the first to quickly embrace the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies in Jesus. Yet the vast majority of Jews were resistant to the work of the Holy Spirit and refused to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Those who refused to believe would be cut off like Moses prophesied. This is exceedingly tragic, and all the more for those who were entrusted with the prophecies about the Christ, yet rejected those very prophecies. Then in verse 26, Peter proclaimed, When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. It's interesting that Peter said the Lord first sent the Christ to the people of Israel, which seems to imply that the Lord would give the promised Messiah to others outside of Israel, which we know the Lord did. The idea that God raised up his servant isn't in reference to his resurrection from the dead, but that he brought Messiah into the world and raised him up to be the Savior of the Jews first and then for all of mankind. God incarnate came to earth to be a servant, and this truth is astounding. We should have treated him like the king of kings that he truly is. Instead, we rejected him and crucified him. Yet the Lord turned this to our salvation by making him our atoning sacrifice. If Messiah was servant to all, though he is Lord of all, how much more ought we to be servants to our fellow believers and those outside of the faith? The wonder of Messiah's mission is seen in that the Father sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. We see here another expression of God's great love for mankind in that he sent Jesus to us so that we could turn from our sinful and wicked ways by turning to Jesus, our Savior. Why should God Almighty save us when our crimes against him deserve the justice of his wrath? Paul said it exceedingly well in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4-7. through seven. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful God we serve. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihpministry.com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Thirst no more
I'll be 